This sermon was preached by Ed Moore, head pastor of North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens. Ed is one of the founders of Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. North Shore Baptist Church has planted five churches since 2005. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.ns-bc.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Bible and turn to Jude chapter 1, but that would be redundant seeing as how there is only one chapter in Jude. So I'll simply say turn to the book of Jude and as you do, I will ask you this question. Do you like movie quotes? I love movie quotes. I love to hear someone quote something from a movie and then guess which film it comes from. Well, of the top three quotes of all time, now this is all movies, all time, top three quotes, do you know that two of them according to AFI, come from Marlon Brando. Uh, One of them is a quote which says, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. And that, of course, is from The Godfather. And then quote number three, all time, is this. Let's see if you're familiar with it. I could have had class. I could have been a Contender. contender. I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am. That's Marlon Brando playing Terry Malloy in the movie On the Waterfront. It's an ex-boxer who took a dive and then followed a life of crime, and he utters those words in regret to his brother, Charlie. Charlie, I could have been a contender instead of a bum, which is what I am. Well, listen as I read Jude, the first four verses. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, or in Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, we once again pause not as a perfunctory form of liturgy just to pray because it is now time to pray, but we pray earnestly now, Lord, asking for the power of the Holy Spirit to be upon the word that is preached. Lord, we want to acknowledge and recognize that unless your spirit is pleased to move, it really doesn't matter how articulate I am or how accurate I am. Uh, Lord, this is your work. And so, Lord, we acknowledge that the true preacher of the word is the Holy Spirit. And, Lord, I would ask and I would beseech and I would invoke your presence that you would come. And, Lord, that you would preach and that you would preach well this morning that you would convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And, Lord, that we, your people, would be attentive to what you are saying, that we would be interested in what you are saying, Lord, and that we would be eager to do what you are asking. Father, for those that know you not this day, even though this message is not geared in an evangelistic way, Lord, I pray that the gospel aspects of the message would convince people of their need for a Savior and that you would be pleased by your word to regenerate And so, Lord, we are looking forward with great anticipation to this book of Jude. Uh, Lord, I'm thankful for the opportunity that I have to proclaim these words. And I would ask, dear God, that you would be with me as the voice box for this message, Lord, that my words, Lord, would be directed by you. And so, Lord, please fill me with your spirit and use me to glorify yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jude. It's the fifth smallest book in the Bible. It's only 461 Greek words in the original. It falls into a section of the Bible known as the General Epistles. And it is intriguing for a number of reasons. And as we go through the book, we're going to look at them. But just let me mention a few here at the outset. First of all, the book of Jude and 2 Peter chapter 2 are almost identical. Now, there's been a lot of debate over the centuries as to who borrowed from whom. I really don't know. I'm really not sure that it matters because both of them were inspired by the Holy Spirit. But there is great similarity between the book of Jude and 2 Peter chapter 2. 
It's also very intriguing to study the book of Jude because he, unlike any other author in the New Testament, gives us insight into some things which happened during Old Testament days, things which are not recorded in the Old Testament itself concerning a prophecy from Enoch and also an interaction that we see uh, between Michael the archangel and the devil over the body of Moses. You don't read that in the first 39 books of the Bible, but Jude gives us that information. And Jude, by the way, is filled with Old Testament references. The children of Israel, the fall of the angels, Sodom and Gomorrah, Cain, Balaam, and I think Jude is the only New Testament writer that references Korah and his rebellion. One other characteristic of Jude's literary style, and that is that Jude likes to bring things together in triplets. Uh, He brings lists together in threes. Well, today what we're going to hopefully discover as we go through the first four verses is in a very simple outline. We're going to look at his greeting, and then we're going to look at his purpose for writing. Uh, Let's start with his greeting in verses 1 and 2. We'll see the author, the audience, and his salutation. Who is the author? Well, the text simply says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Uh, Jude wrote the book. Now, who was he? Well, Jude is just a shortened form of the word Judas. We know that it's not Judas Iscariot. Uh, He identifies himself here as a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. And there are many Judes or Judases in the New Testament, but only one has a brother named James, and that is Jude the half-brother of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 13, 55 and 56, after Jesus had delivered his parables, an assessment was made of him, and these questions are asked, speaking of Jesus, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not his sisters with us Where did this man get these things? In other words, we know him. We know his family. How all of a sudden did he get this ability to speak in this way? In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, we have a parallel verse. And in that, the names of Jude and Simon are reversed. Now, as we read these accounts of the people's assessment of the family of Jesus, we can deduce several things. First of all, when they ask the question, is not this the carpenter's son? Uh, Although it is a rhetorical question, we should give it an answer. And when we do give it an answer, the answer is no, he was not the carpenter's son. His contemporaries didn't know about the virgin birth. Uh, They thought that Joseph was his father. And in the book of John, they even accused Jesus of being an illegitimate child. In John 8, 41, they said, we were not born of sexual immorality. But even though they did not know the truth of the virgin birth, nor its significance, Yet, these verses tell us that they did know his family and that they knew them by name. Now, as we look at the names of his brothers, never are they said to be adopted. Never are they said to be his cousins. Nor are they ever said to be Joseph's children from a previous marriage. Uh, The scripture clearly says that these four gentlemen were his brothers and his sisters are mentioned as sisters. In other words, the doctrine... The false doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary has no foundation in Scripture. It is very clear that Mary was a blessed woman. And it is very clear that she was a virgin at the time of Christ's birth, even when she initially hears that she is going to give birth to the Messiah. When Gabriel speaks to her and gives her the information, she's baffled and asks the question, well, how will this be since I am a virgin? That is in Luke 1.34. And of course, we know the answer from Isaiah 7.14 that the virgin shall conceive. We know that and we know the truth and the importance of the virgin birth of Christ. And it's important to understand and to believe the doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ, uh, that he did not have a biological father like everyone else did. For if he did have a father and he was born of Joseph, well, then he would have a sin nature just like we have. But that which was in her was of the Holy Spirit, and God is his father. Joseph was merely his legal guardian. So the doctrine of the virgin birth is very important. It's not optional Because without it, we do not have a sinless Savior, and therefore we have no substitute for sin. And if we have no substitute for sin, we have no salvation. But after Christ was born, 
Joseph and Mary had a normal marital relationship. It says in Matthew 1.25 that Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son. After that, she had at least six children, four boys and at least two girls. And James and Jude were two of her sons, which would make Jude the half-brother of Jesus. Now, what's amazing is that his siblings were not believers until after the resurrection. It says in John chapter 7, verse 5, For not even his brothers believed in him. Uh, At one point, his brothers were so concerned about him, and they were so blinded, and quite frankly, they were so embarrassed by him, that they wanted to take him by force and put him in what was the ancient Near East equivalent of a straitjacket. Mark chapter 3, verse 21, it says, When his family heard it, they went out to seize him. Uh, For they were saying, he is out of his mind. You see, they weren't even saved until after the resurrection. And we don't see them in any kind of a formal gathering of believers until Acts 1.14, where they were gathered in the upper room. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 15, though, not only has his brother James been saved, but he is growing in the faith. And he is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he's the one that wrote the book of James. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, we know that Christ made a special post-resurrection appearance to James. And his younger brother is the author of the book that we are currently studying, and his name is Jude. Now, all of this earthly family information about Jesus begs two very, very applicable questions. Here's the first question. Why, if Jesus was his half-brother... Would Jude not make mention of that? I mean, after all, if you had someone in your family that was a celebrity, would you not make mention of it? I don't have any famous relatives except my son Parker, who is the mascot at the University of Georgia. He is Harry Dog. That is right. And so when I'll meet people and they'll say, well, do you have any children? I'll say, well, yes, I do have four children. I have two sons and two daughters, and my oldest son is Harry Dog. And I show my picture. Yes, my son is a celebrity. You can see him on the sidelines every Saturday, and I'm proud to, to, to let everyone know that. Well, imagine if you grew up in the same house with the Lord of glory, uh, with the Messiah. Uh, would you not be telling everyone... Uh, Would that not be on your business card? Wouldn't it be on the website? It would be on every t-shirt that I own, in every conversation. Yes, my brother, by the way, my half-brother is Jesus Christ. But Jude doesn't mention it at all. Why not? A couple of reasons. One is humility, but we'll look at that in just a minute. But the second reason why he did not mention it, and I think this is the primary reason why he doesn't mention it, is because Jude knows that his relationship to Jesus was not defined primarily by flesh and blood, i.e. brother to brother, but rather his relationship with Jesus was primarily defined by sinner and Savior. Application, you are not born a Christian. I speak with people and I ask, now, how long have you been saved? How long have you been a Christian? Oh, I've been a Christian my whole life. No, that's a little bit too long. No, you are born in sin. In sin, your mother conceived you. And the wicked are estranged. They come forth out of the womb as soon as they are born, speaking lies. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You must be born again. You must be converted. It doesn't matter whether or not your mother or your father are Christians or whether you lived in a very good Christian home. That doesn't matter. No, you yourself must be born again. And the only way that you can do that is to recognize that you are a sinner and that you can't save yourself and that Christ Jesus died on the cross for sinners like you and rose again and you have to be effectually called and to then call out to Him in faith and repentance. You must be born again. But Jesus makes it clear throughout His earthly ministry over and over and over again that how one relates to Him spiritually is infinitely more important than their bloodline. Even in speaking to the Jews many times, he essentially says it doesn't matter whether you are biologically related to Abraham. That doesn't matter at all. You're of your father, the devil. Jesus, in 
talking of his earthly relationships with his family when he had been missing for three days and he was only 12 years old and he was in the temple in Jerusalem. How did he respond to his mother Mary? He responded by speaking of the fact that he must be about his father's business, Luke 2.49. In Mark chapter 3, verse 33, when Jesus was teaching and he was summoned and he was told, hey, your family's outside and they want to see you. Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around, he said to them, here are my mother and my brothers. And whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. When Jesus was hanging upon the cross, he made it very clear that one's spiritual relationship is much more more important than their blood relationship. He looked at his mother and he looked at John and he said, Woman, behold your son. In other words, John is going to be the one that's going to take care of you from now on. The mother-son relationship between Jesus and Mary is no longer in play. And even now in heaven, she does not function as the mother of Jesus. She is not in a mediatorial role. And therefore, we do not pray to her. And if anyone does pray to her, please let it be known unto you that she does not hear you. In fact, I would go so far as to say she, a good woman, blessed among women, a sinner saved by grace, went to heaven like every other sinner and like every other person in heaven is completely unaware of what is going on on earth. Thankfully, she is worshiping her Savior, Jesus Christ, and she does not know the blasphemy and the nonsense that is done in her name. Yes, she was a very blessed woman, but she, like all other women, was in need of saving grace. Luke 1.47, she rejoices in God, her Savior, implied in that that Mary was not sinless. And to pray to her is not simply just a nuance of Christianity. No, it is not within the bounds of biblical Christianity to pray to Mary. And anyone who does pray to anyone other than God is in violation of really high blasphemy. It is a form of pagan worship. God will not share His glory with another. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 8. You see, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And Jesus made it clear that no one comes to the Father except through Him. So just as Mary's primary relationship with Jesus was not mother and son, but sinner and Savior, so too Jude, although the half-brother of Jesus, identifies himself primarily as a doulos, a servant of Jesus Christ. And from this we see his humility, his attitude such that he knows that he works for Jesus uh, as a slave, as a doulos, as a servant. Uh, He didn't call the shots. Jesus calls the shots. He doesn't take advantage of his family relationship. He says, no, I'm simply a servant. I think it's providential this morning that we are asking you, the members of North Shore Baptist Church, to be servants and to let us know how it is specifically you are gifted and talented and willing and available to serve. I think if Jude were a member of this church, he would be available to serve. I think it's providential that we're presenting that to you today. And if Jude, the brother of Jesus, would view himself as a servant, as a slave, well then you and I should have no trouble assisting the deacons in the ministries of the church. I would like you to note that it not only speaks to his humility, but this also speaks to his reverence. Now please listen to me good. He does not mention that he is the Lord's brother, but he calls himself a servant. How reverent was Jude. And how reverent must we be in our approach to Christ. He and his name is to be hallowed. Application, he is not your homeboy. He is not J.C., He is not the man upstairs or the big guy. He is the Lord God Almighty. And even in verse 4, one of the things that we're going to look at later in the chapter is that those who are the apostates, the false teachers who have made their way into the church, deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. No, He is the Lord God Almighty. He is our only Master. And so a general rule of thumb in referring to Christ would be this. 
consider that there is a God and that this God has chosen to reveal himself and that the means by which he has chosen to reveal himself is through his word. And so when he tells us what his name is, this is what we should use to refer to him. We should not make up names and metaphors just to be relevant. We should revere his holy name. His own brother wasn't comfortable calling him brother. We would be well served to revere his name. The second question, which all of this family information about Jesus begs, is this. How in the world could a person live in the same house with Jesus, day after day, month after month, year after year, observing his perfection, observing his perfect obedience, uh, observing his perfect attitude uh, toward Joseph, toward Mary, and his perfection? Perfect obedience to the law of God. How can you look at and be with Jesus all the time, seeing his love and his gentleness and his grace and his kindness and his wisdom and his generosity and his joy? How can you look at Jesus all the time and still be unconverted? Now, let's consider what families are like. Even in a bad family, the older brother or the older sister will in some way take care of the younger siblings. I mean, it has to be a really bad family for the older brother or sister not to to care for the younger ones at all. Well, Jesus was not a good brother. He was a perfect brother. And so Jude is in the family. And Jude's name comes at the end of the list. It's either the third brother or the fourth brother. So he was one of the little ones. And so Jesus, we can imagine, was a little bit older. But Jesus would have been responsible for in some ways taking care of Jude. How in the world do you have Jesus Christ in your house taking care of you and still you don't believe? Now, when I say they don't believe, they didn't think that he was just a normal person. I mean, that would be ridiculous. In John chapter 7, it seems to indicate that his brothers were aware of his miracles. They were being a little bit sarcastic and they they were being a little bit cynical but but they acknowledged that he did miracles in John 7 he's up in Galilee and it's the time of the feast and they want him to go to the feast so in John 7 3 his brothers say leave here and go to Judea that your disciples we're not your disciples but go so that your disciples may see the works that you were doing they were aware that he did works I mean my goodness John says that he did so many works that if they were written down that even all the books of the world would not be able to contain them uh, we can't think that his brothers would have been shielded from that information they knew that he was a prophet they knew that no man spoke the way that he spoke they knew that he was a miracle worker and so in verse 4 they say go show yourself to the world they knew that he wasn't just an ordinary man but all they had was a intellectual faith they didn't have a saving faith verse 5 for even his brothers did not believe in him they did not have saving faith so how is it The Jude can observe such a strong testimony with so much evidence and not believe. I'm going to give you the answer. The answer comes from the text. The answer comes from the second half of verse 1 in which Jude describes what happens in salvation. And somehow Jesus came and brought to me the victory. I know not how the Spirit moves convincing men of sin. We don't know how it works, but we know what it's called. And here's how Jude could live in a home and still be unconverted. Because those who are converted, Jude says, are called and beloved of God the Father and kept for or in Christ Jesus. Let's just camp out on that word, those who are called. The calling that is spoken of here is an effectual calling. It is to say that salvation is of the Lord. It is sovereign grace. And so when Jude says those who are called, he is not referring to those who receive an outward call, such as you are receiving this morning from my lips to your ears. He's referring to the inward call of the Holy Spirit, which is, according to Romans chapter 11, verse 29, irrevocable. And it is, according to Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, something which always, 100 times out of 100, results in glorification. Everybody who ends up getting this call does end up in heaven, Romans 8, 29, and 30. It cannot be resisted. It always results in salvation. So I'd like you to think of it this way. Let me look at everybody and make sure that I can actually say this. 
Okay, I think, I think I'm safe to say this this morning. <clears throat> Everybody here today has one set of ears by nature. A few Vincent Van Goghs from my angle at this point, but I think everyone here today has two ears. Everybody by nature has two ears. And with those ears, physical ears, uh, you can hear what I'm saying. You can assess what I'm saying. You can reject what I'm saying. And quite frankly, it does not matter at the end of the day how well I preach. Imagine, if you will, instead of a communion table here, if we have a casket, and let's imagine that in that casket we have a body, and let's say that I want to get the attention of the person in this body, and let's just say, and you're really going to have to use your imagination now, let's just say that I was funny, and let's say that I would walk off, and I am just rattling one off after another to this corpse. No response. Why? Because they're dead. What if I just, you know, ask the sound man? In fact, let's do one better. Let's just get new speakers and let's see if we can crank them up as loud as we can. Let's turn up the volume. Can we get some response, please? No. Let's say if I become really animated, animated and really passionate, or let's say that I really improved my vocabulary and that my arguments were airtight and I am just giving this person everything that I've got right here. What am I going to get? I'm going to get absolutely no response. And the reason I'm going to get no response is because this person is dead. And the reason why Jude can be in a home with the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of heaven and earth, and not respond in faith is because he was dead. And in order for him to come to life, he had to be called, effectually called. And one who is effectually called is beloved in God the Father. Why does God call those whom He calls to life? Because He loves them. And once He calls them in love to Himself, what does He do? Does He say, you have now come into My presence, you've now come into My kingdom, you better watch out, because if you don't behave yourself, you're out. No, we are kept all the way to the end. Now, realizing that, here's the kicker. Here's where it applies. Let's say, for the sake of argument, that you, you're unsaved, you're unsaved, but you were raised in a reasonably consistent Christian home. Now, I'm not saying that your parents were flawless. I'm not saying, I'm certainly not saying that your brother was divine. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, that you did grow up in the home of Jesus. Uh, we read in the Bible, are not these his brothers? Here is James and Joseph and Chucky and Judas and Simon. Let's just say that he grew up in the home of Jesus. It still would not have brought about regeneration. Uh, let's say you're raised in a reasonably good Christian home, consistent Christian home, but you're still not saved. Let's say that you are like Jude. Intellectually, you give assent to the fact that the Scriptures are true. You're not an atheist. You're not an antagonist. Jesus' brothers knew that He was not like other men. They had a certain measure of faith, not saving faith. You, you believe that the Bible is the Word of God. You believe that Jesus is the way to God. You, if you were asked to categorize yourself, you probably would say Christian. You're not against the Word of God. You're just not saved. The reason that you're not saved is because you only have one set of ears. You have a physical set of ears. But in order to be saved, God has to effectually call you by His Spirit. He has to regenerate you. He has to give you another set of ears, not to hear my voice. You're hearing my voice right now, and it's not doing any good. You're hearing it week after week, and it's not doing any good. But what you need is to hear the voice of the Spirit of God coming to you and calling you to life. And when you are given those ears, and when you hear His voice, you will be convinced and convicted of sin uh, that you are in deep trouble. I tell you week after week that you're in trouble, but you don't believe me. But when He tells you, you'll hear it loud and clear and you will tremble. You will tremble. And you will also be convinced gloriously that the work of Jesus on the cross can get you out of that trouble. In other words, you believe that He and He alone can save you. If He gives you those ears, that is what you'll hear. 
And that is not going to happen as a result of you being in a good family. Who was in a better family than Jude? Now, parents, we should live consistently in front of our children. Uh, We should make a stand like Joshua. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We should present the gospel to our children in many ways. We should live out the gospel in front of our children. We should, even as we read this morning, raise up our children in the way they should go, believing that when they are old they will not depart from it. But parents, if you have children in your home, or children that are grown, and they are not saved, please understand primarily what is happening here. Do not beat yourself up. These children are not lost because of your bad parenting. Because maybe you were a very good parent. And maybe you were a bad parent. But really, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how good of a preacher I am when I'm talking to the corpse. Because there are many people, and maybe you are one of them, you were raised in a horrible family. But yet you love the Lord today with all of your heart. So please, parents, do not beat yourself up. Because even if you were a good parent, that would not guarantee that your children would be saved. See, at the end of the day, I am saved. And my mother is here this morning, and my mother prayed for me every morning before I went off to school. She would pull me to herself and before I would walk out the door. And it was very comforting and it was very cute when you were in the first and second and third grade, but when you got to be in the seventh and eighth and ninth grade and your friends were waiting at the door and your mother would say, well, Eddie, come on, you can't leave until I pray for you. And she would grab me and pray for me. In those days, uh, in my pagan state, it was embarrassing. But I was raised by a godly mother and I was raised by a godly father. And I am thankful today, Mom, for the influence that you had on me for Jesus Christ. But you need to know, my dear mother, that the reason today that I am saved is not because I had a godly mother. It's because I had a faithful Savior. And we are saved by the effectual calling of the Lord. My children are saved not because Anna and I are good parents. They are saved by sovereign grace. And that's the same reason that Jude got saved and that's the same reason that you, if you are saved, got saved. And Jude gives a trio of salvific blessings which come upon those that have been called. He prays this for them. This is part of his greeting. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Wow, if we just stop and think about that, isn't that beautiful? We are to receive mercy, peace, and love. What would your life be like if that's what you received? Would that not be a good way for us to pray for one another? And as we receive that, what is going to happen? Well, look up above one line. We are going to be kept. We are going to be kept. If you have not yet made plans concerning your tombstone, let me suggest something that will sum it up and it will save your family a lot of money. Consider having this on your tombstone. Kept. It says it all and it's not going to cost you a lot in engraving. Kept. Kept for or by Jesus Christ, knowing that He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And even look in verse 24. Now unto Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. We are kept by the Lord. How long will He keep us? He will keep us. He will keep us forever. So that's the greeting. But now, what about the purpose of this book? Jude, why are you writing? Well, let me refresh your memory on verses 3 and 4. Here's the purpose of the book. Beloved, speaking to believers, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Christ. Let me paraphrase this. Jude is saying, if it were left up to me, I would be writing you a letter on soteriology. 
on the doctrine of salvation. It's a common salvation. It's something that you and I both enjoy. It's on my heart. I'm eager to write about it. It's not a bad subject. I'm, I'm, I'm not writing about something trivial. If it were left up to me, at this point, I would be writing you a letter about salvation. But there has been a change of plans. And brothers and sisters, we need to be flexible to the moving of the Spirit because sometimes there is a change of plans within our work in the kingdom of God. I wanted to write to you about salvation, but there's been a change of plans. And here's why there's a change of plans. There's an emergency in the church. And therefore, it is necessary to change the subject and to write you a letter appealing to you to be a contender, to earnestly contend, to be a fighter, to get into the ring, to put on the gloves, and to fight for the faith. Now, when we say the faith, it is not subjective. It's not our experiential faith. No, it is the faith. The faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. And that faith that you're defending here, ladies and gentlemen, is not up for negotiation or debate. Jude is saying this is not about uh, peripheral, inconsequential, fringe doctrines. No, what is at stake here is not tradition or preference or liturgy. No, this is the core. This is the root. This is the foundation. This is the faith delivered by God through the apostles and the prophets. And what Jude is saying is we have everything to lose here because if we lose this, then we've lost our church. If we lose this, then we lose our meaning for being here. If we lose this, my goodness, we've even lost our souls. Jude says, I'm talking about the faith. What is the faith? Well, the faith can primarily be defined as the Bible, uh, the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, that the Bible is the Word of God without contradiction, without error, that this is God-breathed, that this is truth. Any time we back off of that, even one millimeter, we have lost the faith. So hang on to this and don't let it go. And in it, we see the foundation of salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone. And any time we add works to it or pollute or pervert that gospel, then we are losing the faith. And any time we move away from the person and work of Jesus Christ, the person of Christ, that He is fully God and fully man, that He is born of a virgin, that He is perfect, any time we lose those things, then we have lost the faith. You see, Jude is not writing to them about head coverings or millennial stances or the use of tongues or who is that Melchizedek. And all of those things are important. But no, what he's talking about is... is, is the vital signs. It's like this. Jude is saying, I'm not writing to talk to you about fingernails. I'm talking about your vital organs. I'm talking about your liver and your heart. I'm not, ta- I'm not writing you to talk about your rearview mirror or your hubcaps. No, I'm writing to you to talk about the engine. I'm talking about what makes the car run. And notice the Jew doesn't say, hang on, I will be there soon to help you. No, look at the word you. I am writing to you, appealing to you, you, the members. You are to be the ones who contend for the faith. True that the elders are to shepherd the flock of God and to protect them. But Jude is saying here, beloved, this is up to all of us. You are to contend, to fight for the faith. Many churches are characterized by contending. But they don't contend for the faith. Rather, they contend with one another. They fight with one another. Well, up in verse 2, one of the things that he wishes upon them is love. And so implied in that is that we are not going to fight with one another. We are going to love one another. But Jude tells them that there does need to be a battle and that this battle is not over personalities or preferences or power rankings in the church. But this is a doctrinal issue, and it goes out to all of the members of the church, not just the officers. Beloved, this is for all of you, contend for the faith. And you might be listening to this and saying, I do realize that there are some who do need to fight for the faith, but I am not one of those people because God has not made me confrontational. You see, that doesn't matter. You are still called to contend. And the reason why they are to contend is in verse 4. Because there are some people, now listen to me, there are some people here who shouldn't be here. There are some people here who should not be here. 
says that certain men, certain people have crept in unnoticed. And this verse is often used to encourage Christians to be eloquent in apologetics and to be ready to give a defense for everyone who asks them the reason of the hope that is within them with meekness and fear. Encouraging Christians to be eloquent in apologetics and to be equipped to combat the cults such as the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. And I would say that we do need to be equipped to combat the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, but I don't believe that we should get it from this verse. Because that is talking about those that are out there and we are to defend there. What Jude is saying is they have come in here and they are here right now. And this is an in-house fight. Now, who are these people? We don't know who they are. And I want to tell you, if we did know who they are through means of church discipline, uh, we would um, remove them. We would ask them to leave. John MacArthur, when asked how he was able to endure several decades of faithful ministry, without hesitation said, the reason I was able to do it is because of church discipline. If we knew who those people were, if you were one of them, we would discipline you. We would ask you to leave. But we don't know who they are. And the problem is, not only do we not know who they are, but in many cases, they don't know who they are. Jude says that they have crept in unnoticed. They don't come in carrying a sign. Apostate here, false prophet, don't listen to me. No, they look like everyone else. They sound like everyone else. Judas Iscariot crept in unnoticed to the 12 disciples. And the only one that noticed him was Jesus. They are said to be wolves in sheep's clothing. And I want you to watch this because this is going to help us identify them. They are usually, in fact, in my experience, they are always very sincere. In other words, they believe that they are true Christians. And they believe that what they are teaching is true doctrine. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. Paul writes to Timothy on the subject of apostasy. False teachers coming into the church. And he says, Evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, listen, deceiving and being deceived. So not only are they having an influence on you, but they themselves are deceived. In other words, they believe it. Here's an example. Harold Camping. Now I know that he has not crept into the church in the way that he has actually walked into our building and had become a member of our church. But he has crept into the church in the sense that he uses the airwaves to influence the people of the church. Let me tell you some things about Harold Camping. First of all, he is not insane. He knows exactly what he's doing. He is not senile. He has not lost his mind. He is not greedy. He lives a very simple lifestyle. This man sincerely believes the lies that he is telling other people. And that's why he is so effective. And that's why they creep into the church and they are so successful. Because they are convinced that they themselves are speaking for God. In other words, they believe that they are right. And for some reason, God ordains this to be. You say, well, the devil sent these people in. Well, I guess the agency of the devil has brought these people in. But the text makes it very clear that it is God that allows this to happen. Look at the verse. Certain people have crept in who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Why does God designate the, this people, these people for this job and this condemnation? Well, we know that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, but why does He do it? I don't want to be trite with this, but really the answer is he does it because he wants to. Jesus said, woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must surely come. But woe to that man through whom the offense comes, for it would be better for that person if he wasn't even born. That's a general explanation as to why God designates these people for this condemnation. But I believe that there are some specific reasons for why God allows this to happen. First of all, because when heresy creeps into the church, it will reveal who the true believers are. Here comes the false teacher. This person is like a magnet. Who will be drawn to this person? 
The sheep, no. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Now those that will listen to this person are not really saved. John says in 1 John 2.19, they went out of from us and they were not of us. For if they had been with of us, they would have remained with us. But their going out from us makes it manifest or makes it real. It just proves the fact that they were not with us to begin with. So when someone comes in like this, although we don't ask them to come in, they have crept in unawares. When they get here, they're going to serve a purpose in that they are going to help, in a sense, to separate the sheep from the goats. Another service that they perform is this that they will refine the church and its doctrine. Do you realize that every good doctrine that we have right now came as a result in church history of bad doctrine, including the doctrines of grace? The five points of Arminianism came along before the five points of Calvinism. The doctrine of Christ, uh, fully God, fully man, uh, the reason that we had to work this out and get our noses in the book and to work these things out is because of the heretics that came along and had these false teachings. So when they come, it will refine our doctrine. But there's another reason why I think the Lord allows this to happen, and that is because it gives you an opportunity to exercise and strengthen your faith, to contend or to fight for the faith. And that's what He's calling you to do today. So, who are these people who have crept in unnoticed? Well, that's the point of Jude's book, and hopefully that's what we're going to see over the course of the next several weeks. He's going to describe them specifically as we go through the book, but here in broad strokes in verse 4, he just gives a general description of who these people are. Uh, He describes them here again in a triplet. They are ungodly people, number one. Number two, they are those who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And number three, they are those who deny our only Master and our Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, they are ungodly people. It speaks to their character. Number two, they pervert grace into sensuality. It speaks of their practice. And number three, they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. It speaks of of their doctrine. So their character, their practice, their doctrine, they're rotten to the core. He's going to get into more specifics as the book goes on. But for now, Jude says, we have a fight on our hands and the purpose of me writing to you is to get you up off the sofa and to get you to earnestly contend for the faith. So that's what we have in front of us. Before you go home today, I would like to give you some practical application to help you obey this text, and I have three of them. Here are your applications for today. Number one, please listen very carefully to all of the sermons and the lessons that you hear in this church with a very discerning ear. Listen to what you hear with a discerning ear. In Acts chapter 17, verse 11, we read of Paul and Silas on their missionary journey, stopping at a place called Berea. And of the Bereans, it is said in verse 11 that they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because the Bereans received the word with all eagerness and they were examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. In other words, Paul, Silas, I like you. Like, I like you. But I am not going to listen and obey what you're saying until I check it out and make sure that what you're saying is true. Friends, I am so thankful and you express it so eloquently that you like me, you love me, you are kind to me, you are gracious toward me. Please don't ever listen to me because you like me. Make sure that what I am saying is from the Word. And if I cannot support what I am saying with the Word of God, then don't believe me. And if I ever come to the point where I lose my mind and start to teach heresy and deny the faith, then please remove me. When you come to church, listen to the sermons and look at the book. Look, Sally, look. Listen and look. Please don't take my word for it at all. 
Please know what your children are hearing in children's church and in the carpenter shop. Please know what your children are hearing in the youth group. Please listen to your discipleship leaders and your home Bible study leaders and make sure that what they are teaching is the truth of Scripture. And this goes as well for radio and television and internet and conferences. Because, friends, there is a difference, and and this baffles me, that sometimes people will speak to me and they'll say, you know, the other day I was listening to so-and-so, and I tried to, you know, keep the same expression on my face and to nod and even to try to muster a smile, but inside I'm thinking, have you lost your mind? Do you not see that there is a difference between what they are teaching and what we believe and what they are teaching and what the Word of God says? Please, don't just turn on Christian radio and listen from one program to the other. Everybody that loves Jesus is telling the truth. No, they're not. Listen with a discerning ear. Listen with a discerning ear. Not in my notes. Do you think that between 900 and 1,000 people in Guyana in November of 1978 are going to drink the Kool-Aid when Jim Jones calls for a mass suicide if they were listening with a discerning ear? Listen with a discerning ear. And enjoy the refreshments on the lawn. (laughs) (laughs) Application point number two, closely related. Know the Word. Read the Word. Memorize the Word. Be a junkie in the Word. Know how to formulate doctrine. Know how to think and desire to think. Now, brothers and sisters, please listen to me. As I said earlier, I hope you hear the Spirit of God on this and not just my voice. But please listen to me. This is of vital importance. It is ungodly to refuse to think And to refuse to study and refuse to dig and refuse to prepare. People who say, I'm just not that deep. I'm kind of a simple person. I don't, you know, I just kind of love Jesus. That is ungodly. We are to love the Lord God with all of our heart and all of our mind. We are to be engaged in the scriptures. Learn, brothers and sisters, what the word says. Turn the television off. Put your nose in the book. Learn the book. But don't just learn what the book says. Learn how to think through the book. If this, then what? Draw conclusions. You see, the strength of our church to protect itself against false teaching will not exceed our biblical knowledge as members. And friends, Jude is not talking about defense. Uh, Yes, we can talk about defense, how you are to defend yourself against these hits from false teachers. But Jude is talking about going on the offense and you earnestly contending for the faith. Well, my goodness, some of you can't even defend yourselves. You've been saved for decades. You don't know squat about the Bible. So not only are you not able to defend yourself, but if we called upon you to step into the ring and to earnestly contend for the faith and to attack some of these things, you would not be able to do it. And the reason that you would not be able to do it is not because you aren't intelligent. It's because you don't think and you don't study and you have not made diligent study of the Word a priority in your life. Churches are going to get ripped apart because their people don't think. I go into little churches all the time. The reason this happens is because in our search for church plants, we are always looking for places to meet. And so we'll go in and there will be a congregation. They'll have a, a nice building, a building where you can see. Obviously, there was a day when God was doing something here, but now the church will be reduced to 6 or 12 or 15 or 20 people. And there will be usually a few old ladies who really love the Lord. Who really love the Lord. And they have just watched their church disintegrate into nothing. 
How did that happen? It happened because the people over the decades didn't listen with a discerning ear and because they didn't read their Bibles and because they didn't do the Word of God and they didn't know the Gospel. You have no ammunition in your gun against false doctrine unless you know the Word well. And finally, these all go together. When you detect that your church is being infiltrated by false teachers, you've got to fight. And this goes against everything in the heart of a non-confrontational person. I understand that. And it certainly goes against everything in society which believes that the greatest verse in all the Bible is judge not. But John 7, 24 says, judge with righteous judgment. No, friends, there, there is a time for you to stand up and to fight. And if you say, well, someone else is going to do it, I think that that's what those precious dear old ladies who love the Lord so much in those churches which have dwindled to nothing, I, I think that's what they did. I think they said someone else will stand up and fight. And when nobody after nobody after nobody stood up to fight and false prophet after false prophet came in with false teaching, deny the word a little bit here, and then move into licentiousness, and then move into false doctrine. And before you know it, you have lost your church. And the reason I say this to you is because one day I'm not going to be here. And neither are the other elders. Barring the second coming of Christ, please imagine this. Every elder that we have is not going to be an elder here anymore. This week I received a packet from Vivian Mall. 1933 and 1939 bulletins from North Shore Baptist Church. Do you know that every person that was in the church at that time is no longer in this church? The elders that are here now, barring the second coming of Christ, we are going to die. We're going to move to other places. We might get hit by buses. We don't know what's going to happen. But there is coming a day when we will all be replaced. And so I say particularly to the young people of this church, you begin now to set your mind and to prepare yourself and to accept nothing less than true biblical Christianity. And if anything other than that ever creeps in, you need to defend against it. Paul said, I know that after my departure, ravenous wolves will come in who will not spare the flock. And so do you want to get to the end of your life and look at your church? Imagine this room with 12 or 15 people. Two or three of them are saved. The person standing here is unconverted and is talking about something other than the Bible. Would you like to see that? Do you want to get to the end of your life and see your church ravished with heresy? And liberal theology and no gospel and no life. And realize at that point that right under your nose, under your watch, you have become a Terry Malloy. You are Brando on the waterfront. And you get to that point and you say, I could have been a contender instead of a bum, which is what I am. See, I'm looking out for this church because I don't want this church to take a one-way ticket to Palookaville. I want this church to be filled with people like the Apostle Paul who get to the end and don't say, I could have been a contender. But I want this church to get to the end and say, I have fought the good fight and I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. Not my own personal, individual, experiential faith. But I want North Shore Baptist Church to be a place where the people will say, I have kept the faith. I have guarded this with my life. He's talking about guarding the faith. Paul was a contender. Terry Malloy could have been a contender. But he was a bum. Here's the question today. Are you willing to be a contender? Well, if you're willing to be a contender, my friends, listen with a discerning ear. Wear your Bible out and, if necessary, stand up, my friends. Stand up and fight.
Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us, the congregation, the courage. The courage, God, please, to fight for your precious gospel. Lord, help us to identify, Lord, those that would not speak your truth. Father, help us then in grace to do what you have called us to do. Lord, make us people of the book. Give us discernment, Lord. Lord, cause us always to remember that the gospel is of first importance. Oh, holy God, thank you for saving us of our sins through the death of your, G- your Son, Jesus Christ. Give us now, Lord, faith to believe. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's dismiss today. By- thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners, or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.